It was the quotation of the day, one day last week in the New York Times. Quote, There are a lot of unspoken, impossible rules on the holidays. Everyone is supposed to eat a lot and drink a lot and be nice to everyone else. Teenagers are, so stop, are to stop being sullen for the day. A matriarch is to make the perfect turkey, and some man is supposed to know how to carve it. Yeah? Quote from a therapist in the Bay Area. In the New York Times, this picture of family chaos accompanied the article. The caption said, pass the turkey and an olive branch, please. Now, compare this to the idyllic 1940s picture we all know from Norman Rockwell. He actually painted in 1942 called Freedom from Want, where in this picture everyone is cheerful and engaged in conversation. The children are spotless. Look, the men wear neckties and jackets to dinner. In this picture... Obviously, someone who didn't cook the meal does all the dishes. And no one feels the need to turn on a football game all day. Because they all agree on religion and economics and politics. It's just all good. And, and the day ends far too soon in this picture. So are you a little more Norman Rockwell or a little more... Family chaos in your holiday. You need an olive branch? It is interesting. This is really not an idyllic holiday painting at all. Norman Rockwell did in 1942 as a response to the speech President Roosevelt made. A speech to the Congress where he said, I'm speaking at an unprecedented time in our nation's history. I quote, when America's security is threatened as no other time before, armed defense is waged in four continents. To change a nation from peacetime production to wartime production of armaments, this is no small task. We seek now to make the nation secure. The picture titled Freedom from Want, it's not just another romanticized holiday moment. It's accompanied by a few other of Rockwell's works. In particular, this next one, Freedom from Fear. And if you notice the look on the parents' face as they tuck their children into bed and the headlines in the newspapers there, you get a sense of what was happening in our country during that year, during those years, living in unprecedented time, the president said, World War II. We have, not, we have heard words just like that this year in the last five years, haven't we? In, in America and all around the globe, we're living in unprecedented times of violence, unprecedented times of tension and threats and hostility. We've heard those words here in America. The prophet Isaiah wrote in the 7th century B.C., and he would say also today with us if he could, yes, but we were living in unprecedented times in the 7th century. We knew about tension and threats and unleashing of power for this little nation, Israel, had her own war going on, her own civil war north between the south, her own international conflict as Assyria pressed in from the side, and yes, her own spiritual demise. The prophet Isaiah 
probably could agree with Norman Rockwell's work, Freedom from Fear. Only, instead of painting it, he writes with words. He has a solution to this fear of freedom he's proposing. We'll read in chapter 9, the book of Isaiah this morning, beginning verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it. The little troubled nation Israel, the little troubled people of God. Isaiah saw one coming, one bringing a solution. Isaiah is saying to the people, no, 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 no. God's plan for God's people is active. You just can't see it. But something is happening in the royal line. Take my word for it. Verse 6, I'm just going to repeat those titles again. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Reads like an epitaph almost. Wonderful Counselor means this wise, skilled sort of soldier. Almighty God, this is the conqueror above all the other conquerors who can end the battle. Everlasting Father, we could think of as a parent forever. Do you like that? A parent forever. And Prince of Peace, the one we'll settle on for the month of August, month of December. (laughs) Took a little too much Sudafed this morning. The month of December. Prince of Peace is the one that catches my attention in the year 2006. This person bringing freedom is called a Prince of Peace. What is this? We'll study passages in Luke for the four upcoming weeks this month. Passages where we see this peace described and enacted in the Gospel of Luke. Now, the prince part is a little easier. Prince of peace. For prince, you could just substitute a variety of words in there and get the idea of what Isaiah was describing. You could say commander of peace. You could say leader of peace, captain of peace. We get the idea this one's in charge of peace. But what about this peace? What is this peace? In the Bible, as you know, in the Old Testament, shalom is the word for peace. It's a familiar word used more than 250 times. Shalom usually gets translated just peace in our English language. When I say peace and when you say peace and we think of peaceful moments and experiences, often we think of silence and stillness and quiet and relaxation. Is that what comes to your mind when you hear peace? Just give me a little peace of mind. Not a peace of your mind, a little peace of mind. That's how we often think of peace. For me, you can drop me off in a bookstore with a cup of tea without my cell phone, leave me there for hours. That is peace. Or I could sit at the piano with no clock, no agenda. That is peace. Or kneel in the garden for hours, really digging in the soil with dying plants. Peace. What, what is it for you? For some of you, it is stillness. It is listening to music. It is some other creative expression. 
For some of you, it is having all the grandchildren around. Somehow in the middle of all that chaos, there is peace. This is what we bring to the word peace. What is it for you, by the way, you young families where nothing seems to stand still in your home? I do remember a time when the girls were toddlers at the closet door knocking from the outside while I was on the inside locked in. Mommy, come out, they said. No, mommy's going to stay in. Mommy's in timeout. I'll come out when I can behave nicely. (laughs) Peace for all of us. Extra hard in some young families to get a little peace. But the biblical word shalom, the biblical idea of peace, while it includes our notion of peace, it is so much more. And listen to this list of words which describe and define biblical peace, shalom. It means completeness, wholeness, health, welfare, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, rest, harmony, safety, oneness with God, oneness with each other. This is shalom. If I say shalom to you, one of the ways you could hear that is, may all be well with you. May all be complete and whole and perfect with you. That's biblical shalom. It is the Hebrew word that comes the closest to expressing what it is to be fully human, ordained by God, in the most full expression. And by the way, it includes salvation. To be one with God and to be with God, eventually all is encompassed in this word shalom. Perfect, complete, whole. It helps us understand the blessing that the Hebrews recited regularly over their families. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and and give you peace. May he be gracious unto you. May he lift up his face upon you and give you shalom. All of this. May you be well, completely. Shalom is a way of being as a person. It is a way of being for people in relationship. It is a way for communities to be and for us to be in the world. Shalom. One question I have. I think we assume that people want peace. Perhaps we'd rather just have peace of mind, peace for the moment, peace for this activity, peace for this goal. But shalom could be some work. Do we really want peace? Do we really want to resolve our conflicts is another question that's worth asking. Do we want solutions? I'm not sure we do. Look around, there are casualties everywhere, casualties that are not flesh, but even other kinds. Anger and bitterness and envy and hostility and silence and depression. And These are all casualties. Do we want con- these conflicts to be resolved? The opposite of shalom is disharmony, dis-ease, disease. Fragmentation. In fact, the opposite of shalom is not war, it's chaos. Chaos, like what hovered over this void, this earth before God created something out of it. Chaos. 
if you're honest, you or somebody you know likes a little chaos in their life. There are some people who don't even know it. They prefer things to be a little chaotic. They've figured out how to at least function that way. So it is a question worth asking. Do we want peace? Do we want shalom? Do we want resolution in our lives? Advent, these weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus, is an invitation for us to desire something more, perhaps to desire this shalom. Remember that the kingdom is always defined by the quality of the king. In our kingdom, our king is a prince of shalom. The kingdom is defined then by shalom. You won't read about this kingdom expanding its borders or gathering more wealth or building up a reputation for itself for everyone else to see. It's a kingdom of shalom. It's almost for us, perhaps like we need to stand upside down to understand the invitation in our world where this time of year, the consumption and the excess of the Christmas season makes it difficult to understand An invitation into shalom. Isaiah describes it even further in chapter 11, beginning with verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling, they all lie together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra. It doesn't get much more vivid than that. Letting our babies play with poisonous snakes. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah is good at showing us the results of shalom. Put two of your most hostile family members in the same room together and and they experience peace. That's shalom. Find two vicious enemies and they enjoy a relaxing afternoon together sipping lemonade. That's shalom. Isaiah is good at describing these things. He says less about, well, how do we get that? How do we enact that? How do we do that? The other prophets are similar. Although Isaiah does say a little bit. Back up in verse 4 and 5, where he says the king doesn't judge by appearance or heresy. He also says this king rules with righteousness. He will judge the needy with justice. He will give fair decisions for the poor of the earth. This king will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It says that he wears righteousness as his belt and truth as his undergarment. And there, now finally, I get a little glimpse of something I might do that enables God to enact this shalom. I might reserve judgment upon appearance. When I, when I see someone, I might not make a judgment about them. That means, according to the text, a little more shalom present. I might decide to ignore hearsay or, or better yet, 
put a stop to hearsay completely, the Bible tells me that's inviting a little more shalom into the community. I might decide that I would tell the truth, a little more shalom. I might decide to do right actions, not just for myself primarily, but right actions for everyone around me. That brings a little more shalom. And the text says, what if you restore status to the poor? Well, how would you do that? Pass out money all season long? I keep thinking of our new project, the trailer park project here, where we're at the park cleaning once a month, restoring status to the poor. But, but here's what it really looks like. These people we've invited to come and sit with us for the Christmas concert. We've given them free tickets. Which is to say, come. You are a person worth interacting with for the evening, not just a project to clean up. That's shalom, restoring status to the poor. Or those we took food baskets to for Thanksgiving. Come, sit with us in the Christmas concert. I'm going to sit with you instead of my friends in my little circle. That restores status to those hungry people. The Bible tells me when I do that, I'm enacting a little more shalom in my community, restoring status to these people. This is what shalom looks like. This is how it's enacted. I'll tell you this morning what my real concern is, though. I'm concerned that we give up. I'm concerned that we just expect shalom or peace is not possible. It it, it isn't an option. We live in a world, as one poet says, a world that out-herods Herod. It's not possible. Peace takes more than one person. I could do my part, but everyone else needs to do their part. It won't happen. We'll have to wait for that new Jerusalem city we talked about last month. Then we'll experience the shalom of God. So what my concern is, is that we just give up. We decide it's really not possible here on planet Earth. And we settle. We settle. And we begin to see what is as what ought to be. And we lose the vision of the peaceable kingdom that Isaiah gives us. We settle. And it's as if we say to the devil, you're right, you win. We are just under your curse. We'll wait now for God to rescue us from this miserable place. Could not be farther from Isaiah's vision, Micah's vision, Jeremiah's vision, Jesus's vision. We don't settle. James K. reminds us, The message of Advent is that we can never take our own projections more seriously than the promises of God. We can never take the way we see things, the way we expect things to happen, more seriously than the promises of God. When we least expect it, he says, when there is no evidence for it, God's power comes into this godless world in ways the world itself could never predict or foresee. Don't settle for human projections. Don't settle for what we can see. Advent invites us to reach for the promises of God. 
The kingdom is defined by the character of this king. It is a peaceable kingdom, a kingdom of shalom. Shalom, then, is really what we reach for. The text says, wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of shalom, and of this government, of this peace, there will be no end, no end, no end. So that is what we expect. Shalom. This is the promise of God. His name was Michael. He was 14 years old. Michael loved to watch baptisms. With permission, I tell you the story. Every time someone steps into the baptistry, Michael's face would beam and he would vocalize, not words we could understand, but he was definitely communicating. Michael has cerebral palsy. And for 14 long years, he watched the baptistry, Sabbath after Sabbath, month after month, beaming at every baptism. Michael knows as a CP kid, there's a lot he doesn't get to do. He eats through a feeding tube. Nothing goes into his mouth. And his body, he kind of drags along beside him with his limbs and his hands curled inward. Many activities he'll never enjoy skating and biking and swimming and snowboarding, he he knows he'll never do those things with other teenagers. Michael is on the outside a lot, and he's used to hearing, no, Michael, Michael, no, not you, Michael. And he sits and watches. But somehow, Michael got the idea when he looked at the baptistry that he was not excluded from that. Watching that tank month after month, Michael got this idea that he belonged in that water too. That I would say that baptistry tank is one symbol in our sanctuary of shalom, completeness and oneness with God. And Michael believed it was for him. And so he communicated with his mother he was to be baptized and he got into the bathtub at home and began practicing by going underwater convincing his mother he he would be baptized and we discussed this and there was fear because what what would you do if he began to react in the tank and and it's unpredictable and if he became afraid and how could you control his uncontrollable body during the divine hour of all things people watching it was a a fear Michael would not settle. He got into the water. He pulled his body from the side of the tank, all of it out into the center, and his father stood on one side as I stood on the other, and he smiled that big, enormous smile came over his face every time he saw a baptism as he looked out on the people. And then I saw fear come over his face. I just remember thinking... Hurry up, Chris. Stop talking. Get him under the water. Go quick. I don't know what's coming next. Stepped close, began to go down under the water with Michael, and Michael, with all of his force, began to push back at my hand. And I remember thinking, please, God, how much of him has to go under for this to count? Just his hair wet? Is that it? God, please ordain this baptism. Make this happen. He wants it so bad. I'm thinking all these things. And Michael jumps up out of the water like a jack-in-the-box. And there is that smile. And the vocalizations begin. And his arm goes up in the air. Yes, yes, 
yes, like that. Don't settle for human projections. Reach for the promise of God. God promises shalom, completeness, oneness. Are you willing to just reach? Amen.
Would you stand as we pray? Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Parent, Prince of Shalom, dismiss us now in your good grace. Amen.